Well, once again, I said we're going to be going through the book of Amos today. Uh, First of all, we're going to be going through just chapters 1 and 2. So if you haven't, open up your Bible so that way you can follow along. It's actually really important that you do so because we're going to cover quite a bit of ground today. Now, the first thing I'm going to draw your attention to is that first verse here, verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, The book of Amos gives us in this verse quite a bit of information about the prophet himself. Uh, There's a couple of other details that are throughout the remainder of the book, and so what I'm going to do in this section is just simply kind of throw those together to give you more of an idea of who this guy is. Now, this is more detailed in description than the rest of the minor prophets we've seen so far, so we actually get a good idea, again, of who he is. Now, later in the book, it tells us he is not a prophet. This is his own words. He says, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. And all he means by that is he's not a prophet by profession. He's not born from the line of prophets. Now, verse 1 tells us he's a shepherd. And then later in the book, we also find that he's a tender of sycamore figs. So in other words, it means he's a layman. He's not formally trained in the ways of the prophet. Uh, He's a farmer, to put it quite simply. Now, he also lives in a region named Tekoa, which is again in verse 1. And that's about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. What it's important to know for you about that fact is that simply as a result of living in this region, being a farmer, being a layman, he would have gone to the major cities for trade. He would have seen all the wickedness of these cities unfold before his eyes as a firsthand witness. And so for him, these things are not far removed. Now, we also know his ministry takes place during the reign of Uzziah, who is the king of Judah, that is the southern kingdom. And then Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam II, who's the king of the ten tribes of Israel at this time. There also is a mention of an earthquake here, if you see at the end of verse 1. Now, we don't really have much information about this earthquake, how large it was, and the details of it. It's mentioned briefly in Zechariah 14, verse 5, but it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, everybody who heard about this earthquake would have known about it. They all would have been familiar with it. Uh, It's largely are likely that it was quite large. Now, at this point, he simply jumps into the prophecy given to Israel. I want you to look at verse 2. The prophet writes, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Now, as a shepherd, Amos would have used this imagery rather pointedly. He knows that when a lion comes to devour the sheep, then most of the time, the shepherd is pretty much helpless. He has to simply watch it all unfold before him and watch the carnage take place. Amos hears the roar of the lion. He sees that Yahweh is poised to judge and devour. He also sees that all of the land is going to mourn in this. From the low regions of the shepherd's pastures to the heights of the mountain of Mount Carmel, So he says, essentially, though you enjoy incredible prosperity, and they did at this time, all of that is going away. The roar of the lion is coming, or it has gone forth. Judgment will consume you, and it will leave you destitute. Even the rich and fertile lands would dry up, so that means even the shepherd would face this. However, it is not without reason. In fact, the prophet actually tells us Yahweh has in mind eight different nations, and he gives us the reason why these nations all fall under his judgment. Now, before we get into the particulars of that, I want to just simply lay before you the structure of the passage itself. And it's important, so I want you to look down at verse 3 with me here, because each section follows the same exact pattern. 
So look down at verse 3. You see that there is this declaration from God, thus says the Lord. God tells the prophet immediately that this is his own judgments, his own words, and he is to deliver this to the people. He then says that there are three offenses of Damascus and four that the Lord will not revoke its punishment. Now, Damascus is this major city. It's a nation of Aram. And this is what Amos does in each of these major cities is to essentially take them to represent the whole nation. He's not looking at just one city as particularly wicked in and among the nation to judge. He's looking at that as a representative of the nation. So in other words, everybody's going to be judged that lives in this nation. Now, if you keep looking down at verse 3, you also see he lists one particular sin that they are guilty of. And this is what brings judgment on them. The idea is that this sin is what breaks the camel's back, if you will. There are certainly other sins. There are certainly other things that are bringing God's judgment upon them. But this is the one particular sin that actually provoked his wrath to the point where it will not be drawn back. And notice he also says, again, what I just said, the outpouring of this wrath will not be revoked, meaning it cannot be undone. They have passed the point of no return. And so we ask the question, what is this sin? Well, again, look down. For Damascus, the reason is that they have threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Now, I'm going to get into that in a little bit here, so we'll touch on that more in a moment. For now, I really want you just to see the structure of the passage because in each section, all of that is going to be the same. You have, for one, thus says the Lord, a formal declaration from God himself. You then have a particular city, that represents the nation that God will judge. You then have this decree that goes forth. It's an immovable decree. Judgment is certain. You have one particular sin which draws the gaze of God himself. And then you simply see that judgment unfold and what that's going to look like for these particular people. However, in the midst of all of that, I don't want you to lose focus on what's actually happening in the full book, or at least in the full two chapters we're going to cover today. I don't want you to become so focused on these individual nations that you lose sight of the fact that God is actually looking at one particular nation out of them all. He is particularly angry with one of them, and that's Israel. Now, everything in these two chapters actually builds to the point where God will pour out his wrath and proclaim his judgment on Israel. The prophet Again, using imagery he knows quite well as a shepherd, depicts God as this ferocious lion that is circling his prey. Now, this theme characterizes the whole book, by the way. The imminent roar of judgment has echoed through the nations, and it shall not be called back, except it's important to know he is moving in on the kill the whole time. God is circling around the nations in judgment, moving from land to land, region to region, picking them off one by one. And in this, we see four types of people that God is going to judge. First are the nations who are a cursing to Israel. They curse God's people rather than bless them. Second are the nations that desecrate both life and death. Third is that nation, Judah, who is described as those who live by lies. And then fourth, again, is that nation Israel. They are left to simply helplessly watch as a lion devours its prey, one by one, closing in on them and them alone among the nations as his final prey. And they are guilty of rejecting God's grace. 
Now, as we look through this text, though, I don't want you simply to keep in mind that this is Israel that drew God's focus. Rather, I want you to ask the question, am I described here? I want you to ask yourself, am I described in what these guys are guilty of? Everything hinges on the answer to that question. Now take a look with me at verse 3. We're going to see the first type of person God judges. And the first group that God judges are those, again, who are an enemy to his people. Now this is all born out of the promise that he gave to Abraham, that is God gave to Abraham, that those who bless Israel shall be blessed and those who curse Israel shall be cursed. In one sense, all eight of these nations actually fall under this indictment because in one way or another, they are actually guilty of this crime. But in particular here, at least in the context of the verses we're going to cover now, we find that Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, and Edom all fall under the gaze of the lion. Now, if you look at verse 3, again, Damascus, why did they receive judgment? It's because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Now, if you're not familiar with what that actually refers to, Back in this day, when you went to thresh grain, you would take an iron sledge and you would have iron spikes driven through it, and it would make this job all the easier for you as you beat it so that way the seed would separate from the husk. What's being described here is that Damascus came to Gilead, this is an Israelite town, and they laid their bodies on the ground and then beat them with these sledges and the iron spikes as if they were beating grain. Now, it doesn't take much of an imagination to understand what would happen as you did this, does it? As you would beat the bodies on the ground with these sledges and the spikes, they would open up their innards. They would be separated from the husk of the body, much like grain is from the husk of the stock. It was, in a word, just simply barbaric. But now notice the result of their barbarism in verse 4. What does the Lord say? So I will send fire upon the house. I will consume the citadels. The Lord himself is going to come in fiery judgment. He's going to consume their defenses. He will destroy their dynasties. He will ultimately send them into exile. I want you to pay particular attention to the fact that, again, it is he who will send the fire. It is he who will consume. It is he who will break down their defenses. And it is he who will send them into exile. In every aspect, God claims the ownership of what is to come, even though he's going to use the Assyrians to accomplish this. Notice the certainty in that as well, though. The judgment roar of the lion has gone forth, and he says, I will not revoke it. God has cursed those who curse Israel. And yet the circle draws ever closer, doesn't it? The lion continues to close in on his main target. We find then in verses 6 through 10 that Gaza and Tyre are next to receive judgment because they send an entire population into exile and slavery. Now, Gaza is this capital city of the Philistines. We know about the Philistines. Tyre is the capital city of the Phoenicians. Both of these regions commit the same exact crimes against Israel. They take captives and they sell them into slavery to Edom. Tyre is said to have broken a covenant of brotherhood, and that's likely referring to this old covenant that their king made with King David. Now, regardless of whether or not that oath is in mind here, that bond is shattered as a result of them breaking that oath and selling these people into slavery. Now, to break an oath is not any light matter in ancient culture, but to break it in this way is far worse than simply not upholding your end of the deal. They looked at people as a commodity. 
They looked at them as a product to be sold. They treated that which was given, the imago Dei, the image of God, as a mere spoil of war, a product on the shelf, if you will. And as a result, Gaza and Tyre, again, will have their walls and citadels burned and destroyed. In other words, no defenses that they built would stand on the day of judgment. No troops they could muster would save them on the day the lion came in for the kill. Now, what's unique to the Philistines here is that the Lord promises he will hunt them down even to the remnant. Even to the remnant. All that simply means is that every single man, woman, and child would be eliminated. From the greatest to the smallest, every single person would be consumed in wrath. It is all a result of their sin. Once again, a people bent on being a cursing to Israel is going to bear the full weight of God's curse on them. Once again, the lion's roar of judgment announces their doom. It seals their fate. And yet the lion does not stop circling his prey. See, in verse 11, look down. We find Edom is brought into focus. They're brought into focus because they pursued their brother with a sword. Now, the first three regions we saw just now, these are all foreign nations. They're not related to Israel in any meaningful sense. But now, the prophet dials his focus in on blood relatives. Edom is called the brother of Israel because of their relationship to Jacob and Esau. Now, if you're caught up on the Bible reading plan, you actually just read this not that too long ago. We found that Esau is the father of the Edomites, Jacob is the father of the Israelites, and then in between them, there is this age-old feud that just never goes away. And the reason for that, obviously, is that Jacob stole his birthright. He stole his blessing. And ever since this point in, the, in Scripture, there is nothing but hostility and war between their offspring. Now, the reason that judgment call, or falls on Edom here might look like it's three different reasons in verse 11, but really it's just a characterization of their hatred for their brother. He pursues his brother with the sword, meaning Edom constantly seeks war with Israel. He stifled his compassion. We obviously just saw that as they took slaves very willingly into their own hands. And yet we are going to see that again and again come up through Scripture as they have opportunities to help their brother when they're in need, and they again refuse them. In all of it, Edom's anger only tore continually against his brother. He only ever maintained his fury forever. In other words, Edom never forgave Israel. They wanted to make them pay. Again, the judgment Edom receives here is the same as everybody else so far. Their defenses are going to come to crumble down. They would find themselves at the mercy of a God who at this point will give them no mercy. The prophet Obadiah gives a much deeper picture of the judgment that comes on Edom. Now, the breaking point had come here. Their years of open hostility and hatred would come to an end. Their continued wickedness against their brother would be judged, and it would come to its climax after Assyria comes through. It's for that reason Obadiah just simply says that there is a total and complete annihilation that awaits you. I'm not going to go into all the details of that today, though, because I've already preached on Obadiah. So if you want to hear that, simply go back and listen. But what I want to draw to your attention is that really this is the devastation of sin's consequences playing out before you, but also what comes from a refusal to forgive. Here you have in Scripture an example of two peoples that could never be reconciled. 
Never. Jacob's sins are only ever going to haunt his people. And yet it was Esau, it was Edom who could not forgive. Now you can just imagine generation after generation, family after family of just bitterness and hostility, building and building and building, festering into this open open wound until all that could be poured out was violence towards their brother. This is a profoundly stern warning to any who would hold on to bitterness, who would not forgive offenses. If you keep a litany of offenses, no doubt like Edom did, it will only produce your own destruction. But the singular thread that ties all four of these nations together here is that they were a curse to God's people rather than a blessing. And this shows us something incredibly important about God himself. It shows us, for one, that God is indeed faithful to Abraham to uphold his promises to the patriarch. And yet it goes well beyond that because it demonstrates that God will not tolerate those who harm his people. He will not stand idly by. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. He will execute wrath on those who pour out their hatred on God's children. To put it in the clearest terms as possible, God is a God of vengeance. He is a jealous God. He promises to right all wrongs and rectify all evil deeds, but especially those then against his children. Now then we turn to the next type of person the Lord will consume in judgment. Verse 13, this is the one who desecrates life and death. Again, the gaze of the lion falls upon a people known as Ammon and Moab. These are both descendants of Abraham's cousin Lot. And so the tighter circles come closer and closer together. We move from foreign nations to family to closer family. Ammon is first identified in verses 13 through 15, again, for their desecration of life itself. We find the sin that drew the judgment of God in verse 13. It's incredibly barbaric. Look down. I mean, seriously, look down at this. They ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead for the purpose of enlarging their borders. Again, what you have here is not really something that requires much explanation, is it? They fixed their eyes on expanding their kingdom, and so they killed anyone that stood in their way, but they killed the most vulnerable and helpless of their society just to expand their borders. They have a particularly evil kind of cruelty that disregarded the most basic sense of human dignity. Now, just think of it this way. If they could literally rip open the bellies of pregnant women and kill them and their children, you can only imagine what they want to do or will do to anybody else. If you're so morally bankrupt, you open up the womb of a pregnant woman just to expand your borders, you won't have any issues killing any other children that are outside of the womb, you won't have issues killing the disabled, the poor, the old, the needy, anyone else who is seen as expendable. This is particularly what makes their actions so evil. This is what characterizes them. They trade those born in the image of God for a mere plot of land. For a plot of land. In a vile show of hatred, they build their kingdom. They amass their wealth. And yet in 14, verses 14 and 15, all you see is that this is going to come crashing down. They built up their territory, they built up their wealth, and all that's going to go away. They will be sent right into exile and lose everything. But at the heart of their actions, and this is where you need to hear me, it's a disdain for life. 
It's a hatred of the image bearer, but it's a hatred simply for the cause of imperialism, to expand their borders. Now, in our society, things are all uh, not that much different, are they? While we don't rip open the uterus of a pregnant woman today, we still kill infants at an alarming rate. And yet we do it for the same reasons, don't we? We may not be increasing our borders as a nation, but how often do you hear it thought of that an abortion is done simply so that way someone can maintain their comfort, their wealth, their time, their ease, their professionalism, whatever else it might be. It is profoundly evil and wicked. And yet our modern culture fools itself into thinking they are more moral than all of these ancient barbaric cultures. In the end, we kill in the name of autonomy. We do so because we hate life. The root issue, whether you are this ancient culture or whether you are a modern American who hates life, is the same. It's not just a hatred of an image bearer. It is a hatred of the one who gives the image. It is a hatred of God himself which leads one to do such heinous and barbaric things. And there is simply no other way to square that. Behind Ammon's defilement of life, there lay a hatred of the one who gave life. And yet ultimately, we find that God will bring them into ruin for their cruelty. Proverbs 6.17 says that the Lord hates all those whose hands shed innocent blood. Genesis 9 says, or 5 says that the Lord will require the blood of anyone who murders the innocent. So we are simply seeing all of that just flesh out here. It's no wonder the lion's roar came against Ammon when they ripped open the womb of a mother. They bathed in the blood of innocence, and God is going to bring a reckoning upon them, and he will bring a reckoning upon any nation that does the same. Notice, though, that it is not simply the desecration of life that catches his gaze. The lion's roar came against those who desecrate the dead. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, we find Moab. Look down again. What did they do? For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, meaning it will not be coming back. The roar will go forth. Why? Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, we tend to think very little of what happens to the dead after they die. We tend to think very little of what happens to their bodies. But there was incredible significance given to this in ancient cultures. I want you to know right at the beginning, this is not talking about the practice of cremation. It's not talking about what we know that to be today. What it's talking about is something profoundly different. To burn the bones of this king to lime meant far more than just simply burning his bones. They would open up his grave, they would desecrate the grave, they would remove his remains, then burn them, and then mix them with lime to whitewash buildings. In other words, they ground everything down to the dust so they could use it as a plaster, if you would. It was done to humiliate the deceased, it was done to bring dishonor upon them and the nation. It was all done with a belief, whether it's right or wrong, it was all done with a belief that they could not only destroy the memory of the person from the earth, but that they might even destroy their soul. In other words, it was done for the express purpose of seeking to utterly and completely destroy them. Their remains, their peace and burial, and even their soul. It was a despicable crime in this culture. 
The hope of every person was to have a peaceful burial in the land of their fathers. And yet it was not simply an assault on the dead here. It was an assault on the living as well. Just imagine for a second, someone goes to the grave of your loved one. They open up the ground, they take out the casket, they shatter it into pieces, they take the bones of your beloved, and they burn them, and then mix them with concrete to pour their backyard patio. You would be livid, and you would be rightfully livid. It's a desecration of that person's memory. It's it's something to be outraged over. The Edomite king was brought to open dishonor, and all of his people would have been devastated by this. But again, remember, it's, it's much more than just simply taking them as material. It was done with the belief that they could destroy them forever. So just as Ammon desecrated the living, Moab desecrated the dead, and as a result, both fell under the gaze of the lion. In verse 2, again, we find that he's going to punish them similarly to the rest. And look down, he will destroy their strongholds, and yet they will ultimately die in a panic of battle. The trumpet's going to cry out, the signal war was upon them, and yet in the midst of that, they wouldn't even have the wherewithal to fight. They would simply die in confusion. Verse 3 shows us that even the judges and the leaders in their midst would also die. All of it simply shows that their roles have been reversed. They could not give even the most basic dignity to the dead, and so in their judgment, they would be given no dignity in battle. They would die in fear, confusion, and panic. The nobles and the rulers would die just as everybody else did. The lion's consuming roar would overwhelm them both for their desecration of life and death. But now we find the third type of person the lion's roar has gone out for. Verses 4 through 5. By now, the lion is moving ever closer to his final prey, Israel. Up to this point, the Israelites would have probably not had too big of a problem seeing all this take place. They wouldn't have cared that the foreign nations were being judged by God. In fact, they would have delighted in it. They despised Judah, too. But now you can start to see they're probably a bit uneasy. The lion isn't stopping. His roar is continuing to go forth, and he's devouring everyone in sight. At this point, you start to get pretty darn nervous because you hear the reason why the lion is coming to judge Judah. They are people who lived by lies. You are much, much worse if you're Israel. In fact, you will be the final prey. But now look at verses 4 through 5. We see the third type of person, the one who lives by lies, and this is Judah. They rejected the truth of God's word. Notice again, Amos mentions three different offenses in verse 4. He does this, again, not describing all sorts of different things they are being judged for, but to describe the same thing, the thing that characterizes them. Verse 4 shows us they rejected the law, they did not obey God, and they went the way of their fathers into idolatry. Now, when you put it that simply, it makes it all the easier to live by lies and to spot those who live by lies. How many churches do you know of that just simply openly mock God's word and encourage disobedience in their own people? Or they wink at sin? How many Christians or those who proclaim to be Christians do you know who wink at sin? They reject parts of Scripture they simply do not like, and they do so all while claiming Christ. But let's bring this a bit closer to home, shall we? 
What things have you chosen to look at with indifference? Perhaps there are things you've rationalized away to just simply appease your conscience. Is it perhaps that you lust after women or men that are not your spouse? Is it that you use your smartphone for evil rather than good, that perhaps your problem with adult content isn't all that bad? Perhaps you indulge in some of the more innocent sins we so easily commit as Christians, the type that Jerry Bridges calls acceptable sins. Those sins which few bat an eye at, especially in our culture, but we secretly indulge in because we don't think anybody sees it, or we at least fool ourselves into believing that they won't. We say, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a thief or a drunkard, swindler, nor even a sorcerer. And yet, are you given to fits of anger? Are you given to division? Are you given to envy, covetousness, slander, or gossip? The things which the Apostle Paul lists among the rest of these ones that we look at as the most evil of sins. At the root of this is a heart that lives by lies. This was Judah's sin. They lived by lies. Again, they rejected the law. They did not live by the law. They all went the way of their fathers. They all lived by lies. And what he means by this in particular is that they ignored the commands of Scripture and the prophets. They rejected that which God has made known about himself, that which he has revealed clearly to them. To put it in modern terms, they have followed their own truth. They sought after false teachers, and they were given to worshiping false gods. And time and again, God would send his prophets to Judah, and instead they would heap up false prophets that said, everything's fine. God loves you just the way you are. Again, this is a particular bane to the modern American church in many ways, is it not? But again, let's bring it closer to home. Let's bring it to us. Do you surround yourselves with people who are what the Bible would call a true friend, one who from time to time has to wound you so that you might see the error of your ways and you might see the better way and come to repent and turn back and follow Christ? Or do you avoid that at all costs? Do you surround yourself with the one who will flatter you and who gives you deceitful kisses as an enemy? When you strip all of these things away, all of the excuses, all of the rationalizations, living by lies is really not all that hard to do, is it? It's profoundly easy. Judah lived by lies. Judah's judgment is the same as the other nations. The roar of the lion went out. He would likewise consume them in fiery judgment. He's going to bring the Babylonians down upon them. We just heard about this. We know about this from the book of Habakkuk. God indeed is going to punish the evildoer. God is not going to spare his own people from judgment. And the reason for this was simple. They had the oracles of God given to them. They had what the other nations did not have. And so they were held to a greater account. They had the law. They had the prophets. They just simply rejected them. Thus came the deafening roar of judgment from the lion. It would not be pulled back. It was inevitable. Yet ultimately, it was not fixed on Judah, was it? Not here, not with Amos. The lion in all his wrath and hunger did not satisfy himself with the main course. These are just appetizers at this point. 
God did not simply judge those who cursed his people. He did not simply judge those who desecrate life and desecrate death. He's not even going to stop at those who reject his word and authority. No, he now comes for the fourth person who falls under the judgment of his consuming gaze. Those who practice injustice, those who reject God's grace, which is Israel. Look now with me to the final section of verse, or verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2. The lion has finally cornered his prey, the one he has had his eyes on the whole time, and it is here that he comes in for the kill. Now, Israel's sins are all the same ones that we've already seen and more. They are ultimately characterized by complete injustice in every conceivable way. And we see this very clearly in the litany of offenses that's drawn out for us in verses 6 through 8. Continue to look down with me. You'll see in verse 6, they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, they do the same thing all the wicked nations before them did. They sold their brothers and sisters into slavery. At best, the law allowed those who were debtors to collect their debts from those in servitude, meaning that if somebody couldn't pay off their debt, they could enter into service and pay off that debt through their work. And even at the worst case scenario, if they couldn't, if it was such a massive amount, they couldn't ever work it off, at the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven, all properties were given back to the original owner. That was the worst case scenario. Now, Israel was strictly forbidden from selling slaves to their own people, let alone even allowing them to go without their basic provisions. And yet here we find they won't even forgive a meager debt. The cost of a pair of sandals. They sold their fellow brother, their fellow Israelite, for the pair of sandals. They took whatever they could and squeezed it out. They didn't matter really how much they got. They just wanted something. Then look in verses 7 and 8. You find another way they abuse the poor and the helpless in their society. Verse 7, they trample upon the heads of the poor as if they were already in the dust. Now, another way of simply saying that is that they just kicked them while they were down. In their greed, they extorted and extracted every last bit of what they could out of the oppressed. They delighted in making them suffer. They delighted in extracting every ounce of joy from them. In other words, they delighted in making their lives a living hell. And yet it was so much more than simply taking advantage of them while they were in the worst position they could be in. It says they diverted the way of the humble. Now that phrase in particular here, it refers to how they abused the court system to exploit the poor. They bribed corrupt judges to extort whatever they could out of these people. And the poor and the oppressed, they couldn't actually do anything about it because they didn't have money, they didn't have power, they couldn't bribe anybody to get their way. And so the law was perverted and these people were just mercilessly crushed into the dust. Then you also see, if you continue looking down, their fathers and their sons are having intercourse with the same woman. Now, this likely involved cultic prostitution. It probably extended all the more, though, to concubines, to relatives. No matter how you stretch it, according to the law of God, this was incest. Any fashion. In all of it, you just simply see a contempt for God's holiness. You see a hatred and a defilement of the marriage bed. But most of all, it shows a hatred of God himself because it soils his name and reputation. In other words, they brought shame and dishonor upon God. When they defiled the marriage bed, they brought shame and dishonor about God. 
Now, if you didn't know it, whenever you indulge your flesh, whenever you consume something pornographic, whenever you ogle somebody who goes by you, whenever you support homosexuality or adultery or any of those things, you are doing the same exact thing. You're defiling the marriage bed. You're bringing dishonor and shame upon God's name because this is what he has declared as good. Now listen to me carefully when I say this. This is a sin that if you are practicing it and you do not repent from it, will bar you from the kingdom of heaven. It is deadly serious. We cannot trifle with these things. In verse 8, look down again. He writes, On garments taking his pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, this is a notoriously difficult phrase to interpret that, and part of that is simply the reason of what happens in the Hebrew. What I believe Amos is actually saying here, though, is that they have cloaks they could take from people as collateral for debt. Every night they were to give it back to the person they took it from so that person could go to sleep and have some warmth. They never returned these things. Instead, what they did is laid before the altar of a foreign god and engaged with a cultic prostitute. And then to top it all off, they drank wine stolen from the poor in the house of God. But more severe than even this sin was their open rebellion and flagrant rejection of God's grace to them. This is what verses 9 through 12 tells us. This is the grand sin that informs everything that they do and why they act the way they do. This is the reason why the lion's roar of judgment came for them. Notice God frames things in his free grace, starting in verse 9. It was God who destroyed the Amorite from the land of Canaan so they could come into the promised land. Then in verse 10, it was God who delivered them from the Egyptians. It was God who led them through the wilderness so they could take possession of the promised land. Then in verse 11, it was God who raised some of their sons to be prophets and some of them to be Nazarites. Now the prophets... These were the people that delivered the oracles of God to the people, meaning they delivered his revelation. They would have been the guiding compass of Israel. They would have called them to repentance and faith in the one who so freely and graciously gave them all things, and yet they rejected them. The Nazarites are those who made a vow before the Lord. They were set apart. They were distinctly for holy use. They had strict things they needed to do to be found faithful to their vows. They couldn't drink fermented drinks, so that means they couldn't have wine or anything like that. They couldn't eat anything that came from the vine. They couldn't cut their hair. They couldn't come into contact with the corpse, even if it was a relative who died. But the central theme to all of three of these things here is that they spurned the grace of God. The Amorites, these are the strongest people who dwelt in the promised land before the conquest. God defeats them. Yahweh's covenantal love preserves them so that they can go into the promised land. He gave them and their families this land. And yet what do they do but rob the poor and the destitute of their inheritance? Their deliverance from Egypt is the most prominent of all these things. We see this come up time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Everything in some way always goes back to the Passover Yet ultimately, he's taking them here and saying that he delivered them out of slavery and oppression, and yet they have become now the oppressor. 
In other words, God redeemed them, and in turn, they became the very same type of person they were redeemed from. The prophets, the Nazarites, these are a gift from God. But even here, Israel spurned God's grace in verse 12. What did they do? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. As a result, Israel too is consumed in the wrath of the roaring lion. Verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, the prophet again uses his understanding as a shepherd to bring home a crystal clear message of judgment from the lion. Just like a wagon becomes overladen, it grinds to a halt in the ground, Israel will be crushed under the weight of God's judgment. Verse 14, the one who seeks to run will not find refuge from God. Verse 14, again, the strong warrior would not win in his fight against God. Verse 15, the archers will not stand their ground against God. Verse 15, again, even those mounted on horsebacks would not escape God. Verse 16, even the bravest of warriors would flee naked in shame on the day of Yahweh's judgment. In other words, God would hunt them down. One by one, God would stalk his prey and move closer and closer as the roaring lion. It would not be taken back. And all Israel could do was just simply stand as nation after nation fell before them. All they could do was watch the lion pour out his wrath and wait for the day it inevitably came upon them. They spit in the face of God when he gave them nothing but grace. Yahweh helped them when they were a weak and needy people. He caused them to become a strong nation, and in their strength they abused it, and they took that grace and they oppressed the weak and the needy. They became the oppressor. They forgot God's grace and became a graceless people. In much the same way, Yahweh will help a weak and needy people when they needed it most, and it was from the Israelites. This time, the weak and needy people they would help are those who need to be rescued from Israel. The lion's roar would not be turned back because the oppressed became the oppressor. They were, to put it in a single word, unjust. Now, at the end of all of this, we see four types of people that God will judge. Four types of people. It's, no, it's by no means an exhaustive list, but it is nonetheless captured all of us in some way, hasn't it? You have those who curse God's people. You have those who desecrate life and death. You have those who live by lies. And then finally, you have those who reject God's grace and live unjust lives. If you remember at the beginning, I asked you to listen to the sermon, not with Israel in mind, but with yourself. I wanted you to ask the question, am I described here in these eight nations? And I wanted you to ask it because everything hinges on the answer to that question. The truth of the matter is it would be incredibly easy for us to look at our nation with this type of a sermon. America fits this to a T, doesn't it? We could look at America and say, I believe it's under the judgment of God, and I actually would agree with you on that, but that's not the question, is it? The question is, do I fit this description? Am I under the judgment of God? 
And the answer to that question is that if you are not in Christ, you do. The roar of the lion has long gone out. The world knows the judgment that is to come at that last and great day. And if this sermon teaches you one thing, let it be that there is no turning back of the judgment of God after his grace is repeatedly refused and made a mockery of. Know that apart from the grace of God, there is literally nothing that awaits you but wrath. It is profoundly easy to look at somebody else with this type of a sermon and say, this is meant for them. They are worse than I am. It is easy to watch friends and family slip into eternity without ever contemplating what comes next. Not only for them, but for me. It is incredibly easy to think that there is more time. That all of my questions can be satisfied and then, and only then, will I come. And yet all the while, the lion circles his prey. All the while, the lion is plucking souls from this life one by one as he draws nearer to you. And you will either find your life hidden in Christ where you will be spared from the judgment that is to come, or you will find all along that the lion's roar of judgment was meant for you. So if you were living in open rebellion to God while claiming Christ this day, the call on you is to repent. Turn from your ways. Go back to the straight and narrow path. If you are the person who doesn't claim Christ, whether or not you feel the weight of your sin, that doesn't matter. It does, but not what, I thought, what I'm about to say. The call on you is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, or wealth, or pornography, or prestige, or whatever else in your heart of hearts that you love and cherish, follow him. But you cannot straddle the fence. You must choose. You must choose this day whom you will serve. But realize that if you choose to reject Christ, it will never be said of you that God's free offer of grace was withheld. It will never be said of you that you did not have a warning that the roar of the lion has gone forth, that he is going to judge the living and the dead, and that you will one day be brought before him for good or for bad and see him face to face to give an account of every single deed, every single word. And yet if you choose Christ this day, or if you are one who is already in Christ this day, you will find a limitless ocean of forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. You will find this from the depths of which the most beautiful and wonderful things will be given to you that you cannot even fathom the richness of. You will be forgiven. You will discover what you were created for, to love and honor and glorify your king. And you will discover so much more. And yet most of all, you will discover that the God of the heavens and the earth calls you his son or daughter. He does not call you an enemy. He calls you child. You will realize that the lion who once had his gaze fixed on you turned his gaze to another. That he turned it on the spotless, blameless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And that this lamb took the wrath that belonged for you. 
And because of that, you have no cause for fear. Because of that, your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea, and he will recount them no more. But those promises are only for you if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, the only promise that awaits you is the lion's consuming roar of judgment. Let's pray. Oh, Father, who could stand before you in judgment? Not one of us can come with our deeds or our merits, thinking that we can earn it. Not one of us can come claiming that we are innocent, that we have conducted ourselves even righteously. But that ultimately is the first thing we must see if we are to come before you and be forgiven, that we are sinners in desperate need of your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy that if we do come before you and confess our sins, as the scriptures say that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray now that even this day that you would remind those of faint heart that in Christ they are completely covered. There is not one stain or wrinkle found upon them. They are blemish-free in the sight of God because of what Christ has done. That in him they are safe. In him they can never be taken out. But I pray those who do not confess Christ would even now feel afflicted, that their conscience would be guilty, and that they would not turn away from this, that they would ultimately find refuge in Christ so that they too can be found to be forgiven. Father, all men need Christ. And we do not graduate beyond that truth. Each and every single day, we need you. We need forgiveness. We need the gospel. Father, we thank you that you are so merciful to send us a way in which we might be forgiven, without which we would be crushed, we would despair, we would have no hope. But we praise you this day, knowing that you have made a way for us, that we might be with you in eternity. Pray that you would focus our minds on that reality, that as we go about this day, as we go about the rest of this week, that you would refocus us that we might give you praise for everything that you have done for us, but most of all, that we would be clear to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost, that you would reinvigorate us for this task, knowing that the roar of judgment has gone out, that we could be those who come before the nations and give good news, or we can be those who are silent in the pews, in our couches. Pray, therefore, that you would embolden us for this task. It is in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.